You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Friday, May 8th, 2020. I'm Anya Schultz. And I'm Jamaris Perez. Coronavirus leaves those without housing in New York City incredibly vulnerable. I'm still out here and I'm screaming and crying out for help. So if anybody can hear me, you know, please help me. With the closure of senior centers, many elderly in the city are relying on volunteers to deliver meals or donate food. I had a queue of about 300 yesterday. They're actually coming, waiting for two hours, you know, just to get a hot meal from me. Meanwhile, kids aren't just having to adapt to remote learning, but to extracurricular activities too. And doulas are now essential workers, according to the governor's office. We consider ourselves essential in that way because we know that our presence makes a huge difference. For businesses like airports, the need for social isolation might mean fewer workers and more robots. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Emily Pizzacreta. The U.S. has reached its highest levels of unemployment since the Great Depression, with 14.7% of Americans out of work. That's according to the April Jobs Report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. A five-year-old boy in New York City died yesterday from a mysterious illness related to COVID-19. Today, Governor Cuomo said 73 children in New York City have become ill with the same condition. The condition causes a dangerous inflammation of the blood vessels. He said investigators were trying to figure out if the illness could be linked to other deaths. This is every parent's nightmare, right? That your child may actually be affected by this virus. But it's something we have to consider seriously now. But the governor also expressed optimism. The hospitalization rates in New York State fell 35 percent from last week. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced changes to social distancing enforcement. The NYPD will begin limiting the number of people allowed in certain neighborhood parks. The announcement follows an outcry over differences in social distancing enforcement across the city. Yesterday, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office said 35 out of the 40 people arrested for social distancing violations were black. But de Blasio said arrests were too small to jump to conclusions. Very few people have been arrested and very few people have been summoned. Next week, New York City will begin offering free antibody testing at neighborhood testing centers across five boroughs. Antibody tests are meant to show if an individual has recently had the virus. Testing will be available by appointment only at a hotline number that has yet to be announced. It's cold and rainy in New York City today, with a high of 53 degrees and an overnight low of 35, just shy of a May frost. This Sunday is Mother's Day, and luckily for all the moms out there, by then it should be warmer. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Emily Pizzacreta. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Anya Schultz. And I'm Jamaris Perez. Over the last few weeks, conspiracy theories about coronavirus have gone viral online, and experts have described the spread of disinformation as an infodemic. But as disinformation is on the rise, a movement to make scientific research more accessible to the general public is gaining momentum. Lauren Peace reports. Samantha Yamin is a scientist with a PhD and background in stem cell research. She's also somewhat of a social media star, with tens of thousands of followers. Here she is in an Instagram video. To my local news station and a bunch of other news outlets, SARS-CoV-2 can live for hours in the air. I've been reading about this thing for months and I've never heard anything like that. So I looked into it. It was based off one single study. 
Oh my gosh. Yamin, who's known online as Science Sam, says one study is a good start, but not enough to really say anything definitive. She's part of a growing number of scientists and doctors now using social media to break down complex data and research for her followers. She wants people to engage with complicated ideas and ask questions about things they don't understand. I hope it changes the way that we talk about science and the way that we ask people to implement science in their lives. One silver lining coming out of this is I'm noticing a lot of new people reaching out to me and saying like, hey, you know, I'm just really confused. You seem nice. <laughs> Can you help me? What should, I, what should I be reading? Dustin Duncan is an associate professor of epidemiology at Columbia University. He agrees that there's increased need for scientists to be able to communicate with the public. But he says the communication needs to extend beyond the internet. There's a large swath of people who don't necessarily have internet access. There are literacy issues, health literacy issues. Duncan says he expects that researchers will study this moment for years to come, trying to understand the best way to communicate in future public health crises. Lauren Peace, Columbia Radio News. In the past two months, airline travel has dropped 96%. Thanks to coronavirus, airports are quiet, and many of the workers have been laid off. Reporter Tay Glass looks at how airports are turning to new technology to keep passengers and staff safe from the virus. Saeed Bakis has been working in security at JFK International Airport for over a decade. Up until recently, he was helping to oversee the passenger pickup and drop-off area. Bakis turns 60 next week. He has pulmonary issues, so he's high risk. So I was, I was very, very worried because I don't want to die now. I don't want to die the way that I saw that they are loading these containers with dead bodies in bags. On March 19th, Bacchus called in sick to work. He was okay, but when he went back to work, they told him that he was furloughed, effective immediately, with no pay. I'm not getting anything from the employer. Nothing. I'm trying looking into the New York State Department of Labor to see if I can get any financial benefits to help me to pay my rent, my food. I have no, no financial income right now. He's put a little money aside, but he doesn't know how long it'll last, especially if he gets sick. In March alone, 1,200 airport employees in New York lost their jobs with no severance pay. Vladimir Clairjun also worked in security at JFK. He said that before coronavirus, his subcontractor employed 250 or so people. Only 10 or 15 of them are left. He wasn't one of them. In addition to his salary, his work gave him a sense of purpose. I miss being on the front lines. I miss helping people. I miss my coworkers. The airline industry is responding to two crises simultaneously. The massive loss in revenue and the safety concerns of the passengers and whatever workers are left. Ken Jacobs is the chair of the UC Berkeley Labor Center. He says the airlines are likely to try to meet these challenges by rushing to adopt more automation in airport terminals. The COVID-19 crisis is going to speed up automation in places where it then can be used. So the fewer workers means fewer workers close to each other. Al Lyons works for HOK, a design firm. He's helped design airports all over the world, including JFK. 
He lives near LaGuardia, and he says there's at least one positive outcome from the decline in air traffic. It's kind of nice not hearing the planes overhead all the time. <laughs> Lyons also thinks that coronavirus will accelerate the adoption of contactless technology in airports. Less contact means less potential for a disease like COVID-19 to spread. Eventually, he says, a traveler could get from passenger drop-off to their seat on the airplane without interacting with anyone. Biometric data, Lyons says, like your eyes, your fingerprints, even your voice, can be used to let people move through airports seamlessly. Uh, the systems could identify me as Al or you as Tay and bring up an image of your license and all without um, any interaction between you and the uh, TSA so that automated process would be a lot safer than what it is today because you wouldn't have to pass a license to anybody or pass a boarding pass to anybody. Lyons says this kind of contactless technology will make the process of getting through airports faster for passengers and safer for everyone. Contactless technology can already be found in airports in Amsterdam and Dubai. There's always some good sides to tragedies and I think you know one of the good aspects of this I could see it happening in two three years even quicker because the technology is here to do it today and with clear your eyes and hands get you through security faster at airports stadiums, this is an ad for clear a security machine that scans your eyes and fingerprints it's meant to do the job of the worker who makes sure the photo on your ID is actually you a worker like Saeed Bacchus. Clear is already installed in over 65 airports across the country, including three terminals at JFK. Please come a little closer to the camera. Alliance thinks that these kinds of services could do a better job of assessing threats than their human counterparts. You know, the, the people that are guards, they're not the highest paid people. They're, they do a great job, but um, I don't, I think if somebody wanted to fool them, they, they obviously could in my opinion. One of the former security personnel at JFK, Vladimir Clerjun, disagrees. I think automation is a really, it's a really bad idea. These kinds of technologies, he says, lack human intuition. You know, you notice, you, you know, you, you get that gut feeling when you feel like something is off. Ken Jacobs from the UC Berkeley Labor Center says that as airports move towards these types of contactless technologies, workers like Claire June should be more involved in the process. Technologies will work best if the people who have been doing the work are part of that planning and engaged in uh, the discussions that lead to the designs and then, of course, in the implementation. Contactless technology could make airports safer. They also might mean fewer jobs when travel gets closer to normal. But one thing is clear. Coronavirus has pushed the throttle forward on automation. We were already on the runway. Now we're hurtling down it. Tay Glass, Columbia Radio News. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has finalized rules for governing sexual assault cases on college campuses. But the new guidelines are over 2,000 pages long, and the deadline is just 100 days away. That means that schools are concerned about how they'll be able to implement the changes, like live hearings, which because of COVID-19, now have to be offered virtually. 
I spoke to Jennifer Henkel with Culture of Respect. She used to manage Title IX cases. Now she helps colleges and universities make changes to end campus sexual violence. I asked her what concerns colleges are hearing. The concerns that those organizations have are about some of these things like the live hearing, about some of these things like the standard of evidence. There's a concern that this these types of live hearings can be traumatizing for survivors and for those who are coming forward and reporting something. There is a lack of clarification as to who should be advising and who has the expertise to be advising. These are the individuals who will be cross-examining each party and the witnesses. One party has the ability to have a lawyer. The other party doesn't have the ability or the can't afford a lawyer and maybe has a parent or a friend serve as their advisor. And what does that mean for the experience of the reporting or responding party who is utilizing this person as their advisor? Does this create an unfair process in the end? What are some of the specific challenges um, that we're going to face to try and implement these on these campuses? I think given the shutdown of campuses due to COVID, as well as many institutions having to currently furlough employees or put in hiring freezes, they're not going to be able to hire the additional staff that this requires in 100 days. They're not going to be able to pull together and get everything done in 100 days in a way that is meaningful and does this responsibly. There are students out there who have a lack in basic needs, and they may not be able to get to a, a safe and private space that has internet so that they can do these live hearings virtually. And if they're not be able during COVID-19 particularly to be in the same space as their advisors, how are they gonna have that private conversation? In person, it's a little easier because institutions can provide a room, but the nature of the world as it is now doesn't allow for that in the same way. Do you think there'll be a high number of schools that won't be able to comply with all these things like hiring freezes? I know that institutions are creative and resilient. So ultimately, what we want institutions to know is that this is, and remember, is that this is the floor, not the ceiling. So how do we help you as institutions set that floor and implement these policies in order to become compliant and then work together after that to do better? I think the vast majority will have those together in that 100 days, even though it may be incredibly difficult. It's once we get to the end of that that we want to make sure that we're moving beyond and really reaching for that ceiling. That was Jennifer Hengel from Culture of Respect at NASPA. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. New York City schools have now been closed for almost two months. Over one million kids are learning remotely. Many sports, clubs, and mentorship programs helping at-risk youth have also moved online. Brett Forrest reports on the challenges and successes as these resources go virtual. For Rosie Peralta, getting online comes with challenges. I see Rosie back in... Rosie, can you try talking Zoom right now? If not, we're texting you a phone number to call. Okay, can you still hear me? Rosie, are you there? Rosie's not in yet, is she? 
It took about 25 minutes of calling, texting, and talking into the unknown to finally establish a good connection for Rosie's interview. Once on, she was excited to speak. I am 11, turning 12, and I am in the fifth grade. Rosie's connection issues signal a larger problem many New York City youth are facing, unreliable technology or internet connection. Rosie has been quarantined in a Manhattan apartment with her three younger brothers, mom, and grandma, and it's hard to be home all the time. I'm kind of sad because, like, I miss my friends and, like, my teachers and stuff. So I talk to them on FaceTime, and I text them a lot. She can't hang out with friends in her building like she used to or play piano at school. She has access to a computer and her mom's phone at home, but she's had problems with spotty internet and family interruptions. So is that distracting when you're trying to do schoolwork online? Are, are they always running around being yeah. loud? Every time I have a meeting with my teachers, they always like yell and stuff. I'm like, shut up, like be quiet. I need to listen to my teachers. But classes aren't the only activity that moved online for Rosie. She's also a little sister in Big Brothers Big Sisters of New York, a one-to-one -one mentorship program that matches at-risk youth with an adult role model. Her big sister, Elise Ford, says they met up about once a month for the past three and a half years. But now they actually connect more often during quarantine. I feel like we've been talking even more, just even like little texting things. And we're really into the FaceTime and having a lot of fun with TikTok, with yoga. So there's a lot of virtual activities that we've done together. We just talk more. And I felt like we know each other more than we did like before. Ford was worried about their match when the shutdown happened. She didn't know how she's going to come up with virtual outings, but she wanted to still be there for Rosie. Big Brothers Big Sisters provided a lot of ideas and resources, but Ford eventually thought of her own. It's just like the movement piece. So if it's dancing or if it's yoga, it just feels so good at this moment since you can't really go outside much. But like Rosie even said, I feel like we've actually been closer now uh, more than ever before, just because it's such this shared experience and we're both in the city and we're just both there for each other. Rosie is just one of the 5,300 children that Big Brothers Big Sisters serves throughout the city. Speaking from her home in Riverdale, Bronx, Alicia Guevara, CEO of the organization, says their mission to provide a mentor for the kids is more important now than ever before. Right, they've been completely uprooted from their schools. Their daily home life routines look different. And their social lives have been impacted too. And so the value of the mentoring relationship has certainly increased tremendously. Guevara says 100% of their matches have been able to convert virtually, whether that means over video, phone, or texting. But it isn't a perfect substitute. The human connection just isn't there in a way that um, our bigs and littles are accustomed to seeing it. And um, because our bigs and littles are not meeting in person, all they have is technology to rely on. And for some of our littles, they are absolutely in the space of the digital divide. That digital divide, poor Wi-Fi or no internet devices. It's something that Big Brothers Big Sisters is trying to help close so the mentorship can continue. We have invested in technology and purchased devices for our littles. We're looking to acquire hotspots for our littles so that we can ensure that at least they have this technology to remain connected to their bigs, but more importantly, to continue to minimize the disruptions to their education. But there are some services that are harder to move online. Melissa Stenger is a psychotherapist and social worker based in Manhattan and Queens. 
She also says the lack of other resources found at school is disrupting kids' lives. They were getting support in school from either, um, you know, a school social worker, a guidance counselor, um, certain teachers, if they have an individualized education plan. And at home, they can't get those same resources. It's, it's been a struggle for some of them to still meet the requirements that school was able to help them meet. Stinger says some kids really need that strong structure school provides to succeed. When they're at school and they can get those supports there, you know, that really helps them to thrive. And when they're in the absence of those supports, you know, especially with parents who may not be financially able or emotionally able to provide those supports, kids really do need structure in order to grow. Still, for many kids, the shift online was a natural one. They're used to communicating through technology. Stinger has even seen some surprising benefits in her therapy. Working with youth in this platform, you know, I think is given some of my clients the freedom to say things that they might not have said in person. You know, they feel a little less inhibited, maybe, by an in-person interaction. That said, Stinger's looking forward to seeing clients in her office again. When it comes to building rapport and trust, she said some things are best done in person. Brett Forrest, Columbia Radio News. Mother's Day is coming up on Sunday. How is COVID changing plans this year? We asked Uptown Radio's listeners how they'll be marking the occasion. So I made cards for my mom and grandma with uh, items I already had in the apartment so I didn't have to go out to somewhere like um, CVS uh, using sort of plastic colorful paper, making colorful pop-up Mother's Day cards so that they can Lysol it down and rub it down with dry alcohol wipes. Um, so that it can be all sterilized and they can still enjoy it with no worries. Usually I prepare either a brisket or uh, a, a pulled pork shoulder and uh, we picnic outside with uh, my wife and uh, my brother-in-law and my father and mother-in-law. Um, and luckily they live next door to us, so we'll probably be doing that again this year. So for us, it won't be all that different. You know, the plan is for my sisters and I to get up early, uh, and, you know, make breakfast. We're thinking maybe like brioche French toast, if we can find brioche. Um, uh, and then after that, we were going to do like a Zoom uh, brunch with my grandma, who is very sad that she can't spend it uh, with family. At the end of the day, we're just grateful to be well and to be alive and that everyone is okay so far. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old boy. We try to find moments to celebrate all the time in our family. It's not that different, to be honest with you. Uh, I think that mothers (laughs) bear the brunt of how to celebrate Mother's Day anyway. And if we aren't explicit about saying, this is what I want for Mother's Day, it doesn't happen anyway. And this is the first year that I told my husband specifically that I wanted a gift. And then he bought it for me, so... (laughs) There are over one million senior citizens living in New York City. Already vulnerable to COVID-19, the elderly are affected by the city shutdown in unique ways. But volunteer organizations are filling the gaps. Megan Cattell reports. Yume Wong is 79 years old and has lived at Hongning Housing for the Elderly for the past decade. It's a building for low-income seniors who are over 60. Wong lives alone and says when the city's pause order took effect, She was worried about not being able to go outside for groceries or see her home health aid on a daily basis. Uh, Wong tells Priscilla Folk 
the wellness coordinator at Hongning in Mandarin, that she relies on Meals on Wheels deliveries for most of her food. But when the virus hit, those meals didn't arrive for a week. Wang tells folk that in the end, it was okay because she called her home aide, who told her not to worry, that she wouldn't let her go hungry and could buy her some groceries. Wang's story shows how reliant seniors can be on the services that feed them and the challenges they face during this pandemic. The city's 250 government-funded senior centers shut down their free meal services and access to health care checkups in mid-March. In response, the Department for the Aging expanded its meal delivery services, but volunteers have also stepped up to fill the gaps. Patrick Mock manages 46 Mott Street, a bakery in Chinatown. Every day, there's a line wrapped around the block where he works, each person standing six feet apart. Most of them are elderly and waiting for a free box lunch. I had a queue of about 300 yesterday. They're actually coming, waiting for two hours, you know, just to get a hot meal from me. With the city mostly shut down, Mock noticed more of the neighborhood seniors needing food access when the COVID-19 pandemic hit the city. He explained this while packing bakery orders from inside the shop. Once I start picking up cut noodles and taught them how to make it themselves, one thing I notice is that uh, a few of them, after they finish their noodles, they're trying to add more hot water into the cup. I asked them why. And they told me how the cup noodles, they could use it as a two-for-one meal. So pretty much after they finish all the noodles, they fill up the cup with hot water and they drink it as a soup. And then that's when I really found out there was a need that I wanted to do more. Food insecurity among seniors is dire, says Jenny Lowe. She's a donor and volunteer for 46 Mott's lunch program. Lowe is well connected to the elderly communities in the Lower East Side. She served on the board for the Chinese American Planning Council for 30 years. I mean, this is this devastation I've never, I've never seen before, even as bad as it was after 9-11. The food banks are, you know, drying up. It is immensely challenging for them to provide meals to those who need it. Dr. Tina Sadarangani researches the needs of senior citizens at NYU. The grocery stores, you know, are hard enough to navigate when you're an able-bodied person. Um, food deliveries, all that type of thing, it's hard to get. So it is an enormous challenge, and I can tell you that just my colleagues in the community are hearing this right and left, that it's a huge problem. Seniors of color are especially vulnerable. 60% of New York City seniors have limited proficiency in English. Hispanic and Asian immigrant seniors are more likely to live below the poverty line than other racial groups. Karen Joe runs Hillcrest Homes, which serves 4,000 seniors in southern Brooklyn. She says they've had to quickly readjust to operating remotely, like creating their own food delivery program. So I think it's still a learning curve for everyone, um, but because we've never done delivery before, um, we've we don't have funding to be contracted to do meal delivery, but I think we felt that it was the right thing to do, um, given the situation, and that we can't just sit there and not serve the seniors that we know need help. It isn't clear if these volunteer efforts can be sustained long term, as they rely on donations to continue serving seniors. However. What they're doing is helping people like Yu Mei Wang have access to food and stay connected in a time of social isolation. 
Wong says what's helped the most is not just the free delivery programs, but the handwritten notes that come with some deliveries written in Chinese. Holding up each card on Zoom, she says, look, the cards say, keep going. We love you. We're thinking of you. Wang says these messages give her energy. Megan Cattell, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Anya Schultz. And I'm Jamaris Perez. Coming up, doulas in New York City are now considered essential workers. The seafood industry adapts to restaurant closures. Coronavirus has made the lives of those facing housing insecurity even harder. And many say they're not getting the help they need. These stories and more coming up. When most Americans want seafood, they go out to eat. In fact, in the U.S., about 70% of fish is eaten outside the home. So now that restaurants are closed, the seafood industry has been thrown for a loop. Drew Cherry is the editor-in-chief of the international seafood publication Intrafish. We spoke about how New York seafood suppliers will need to find new ways of getting fish to consumers. Seafood kind of passes through a lot of different hands before it gets to your plate. A lot of, for example, smoked salmon companies, uh, let's say Acme Smoked Fish, which is there in Brooklyn. Acme has a big uh, presence in retail and a big presence in food service. So a company like that has to be thinking now, all right, how do we pivot? How do we pivot to retail and find a new way to sell our products? Because interestingly enough, as people have been staying more in their homes and doing more fresh delivery and things like that, there's been a huge boom in retail sales for seafood. How is that switch to retail really going to make a dent in the sales that are lost for restaurants? And is there even infrastructure for that switch to be viable? It's not going to be easy because you have to be able to retool your factory, for example, if you're talking about larger suppliers. Retail packs, as you see them on the shelves, for example, let's take smoked salmon again. You know, that's a pretty unique way of presenting. You have to have your brand on it. You have to have particular sizes for retailers. So moving from food service business where they might just sell whole size of smoked salmon or even whole whitefish, for example, at deli counters. It's not so simple as just slapping a retail logo on that and selling it into that different channel. Um, there's a lot of global markets for seafood, so a lot of U.S. product ends up being exported. So I think that the challenge is going to be for smaller scale fishermen to ensure that they have buyers for their product. But things like people delivering fish, that might help move people away from where they might have been traditionally selling into restaurants. So you're saying that kind of right now it's the local smaller scale fishery operations that might be in danger, but they also might benefit when people start thinking more about consuming locally. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of the overwhelming volume of seafood that's consumed is going to be things like fish fingers or shrimp in restaurants or so it's these big like bulk products that 
we see in stores everywhere, those are going to be fine. And in fact, those are selling a lot more. And can tuna, for example, is having like a golden moment right now because everybody is getting in their prepper mode. But if you live on the coast, it's a lot easier for you to get fresh fish and get kind of local species. But certainly that's not really something most people are going to do. Americans are pretty finicky and we're pretty lazy. So we just want to grab something and throw it on the grill. What about consumers and the choices they make? People love to, let's say, eat oysters at restaurants, but you don't see them eating oysters at home as much. So are we going to see consumer habits changing, people missing seafood and wanting to cook it at home? Well, probably not oysters, unless people are more than willing to have their hands slashed open. So <laughs> I've, I've never successfully opened one. Um, but I do think that, that consumers are going to, uh, to begin to eat more seafood in, in their home. But it's really going to be, I think, dependent on a couple of factors. And one is uh, the meat shock that we're seeing right now with all of these plants closing. These major meat manufacturers are having these massive COVID outbreaks. So that may give a lift to seafood. It may give an opening for, hey, there's this other protein out there. You can't get your hamburger. Well, maybe people might try a filet of salmon. Okay, Drew. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Anytime. On Monday, May 4th, Governor Andrew Cuomo approved new maternity guidelines for New York hospitals. Doulas are now considered essential workers. That means they're allowed into delivery rooms during the pandemic. Doulas aren't doctors or nurses. Instead, they provide emotional support during birth. But hospitals are already struggling to supply personal protective equipment to their own staff. And as Emily Pisacreta finds out, that means some big questions for doulas many of whom are contract workers. Myla Flores has never needed anyone to remind her that her work is essential. I have been drawn to this work really since I was a child, uh, supporting my big sister as she gave birth to my nephew. And uh, that was a time that I just experienced the beauty of birth and the importance of support. She was a single mama. Flores is a certified doula. She works with parents-to-be during pregnancy, labor, and birth. Here's a clip from a class she gave on Mom Life TV. Hello, my name is Myla and this is Sivan. She's about 32 weeks pregnant. So part of what we are going she to She helps future today. parents prepare for the big day and comforts them during the really hard part. But she says that doulas like her also play the role of advocate, especially in hospitals. We've been there when lives have been saved. We've been there when someone was bleeding out and we told someone to pay attention to this ASAP, you know? That's one important reason why state and city officials in New York have looked to doulas as one of several ways to address a serious problem. According to the State Department of Health, black women in New York are more than three times more likely to die during or soon after childbirth than white women. But research also shows that having consistent emotional support, like the kind provided by doulas, can reduce the risk of complications. So to Flores, it made sense when New York State released recommendations last week that doulas counted as essential workers. We consider ourselves essential in that way because we know that our presence makes a huge difference. For several weeks before, doulas like Flores had been largely barred from New York hospitals because of COVID-19, but now they're allowed back in the delivery room. But that means they're faced with some big questions. Will hospitals provide doulas personal protective equipment, or PPE, and train them to wear it properly? 
it's not clear. Many hospitals have struggled to provide adequate PPE for staff, and some healthcare workers have even died. And most doulas are contract workers. They're not employed by hospitals, but by the expectant parents. A part of me, the wishful side, wants to believe that we are valued and that they will find a way to ensure that our safety is a priority as well, but the reality may be different. If they don't feel safe going to the hospital, there is an alternative, working virtually. But Flores says that some doulas and parents are unsure if helping with a birth over the phone or on Zoom will be the same. Nice. She's almost here, my love. Come on, Jamie, you're so close. Jamie Cruz from Westchester is a mom who experienced virtual doula care firsthand. Today, she's feeding her newborn baby, who was born just a few weeks ago. Cruz gave birth during the week that New York hospitals were barring anyone from the delivery room other than doctors and nurses, meaning she couldn't have her doula or her husband there with her. As her due date approached and social distancing requirements changed, she was terrified. It definitely caused a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of sleepless nights and weird dreams. This was Cruz's fourth baby, and she'd experienced complications before. The thought of not having her husband and doula there had her considering switching to a home birth. But her baby showed up two weeks early, and things were moving fast. I ended up laboring in the parking lot because I didn't want to go in. I was too afraid to go in because I knew I'd be by myself. So we stayed in the parking lot with her and my husband supporting me for about 40 minutes before I said I have to go in. They came out with a wheelchair and I went in, and um, that was that. The rest was via speakerphone with both Denise and my husband. She had her doula, Denise Bolds, in her ear the whole time, coaching her from right outside the hospital. The birth was so quick that Bolds' phone didn't even run out of battery. Cruz says that she would have rather had Bolds there in person, but having her on the phone worked surprisingly well. For any pregnant woman that's worried about it right now with the COVID-19, um, it absolutely is doable having a virtual doula. Once you're laser focused on your delivery, it's pretty powerful having that doula present for you. Denise Bolds is a member of the National Black Doulas Association and a certified childbirth instructor. She's attended hundreds of births, both in hospital and at home. She feels strongly that virtual care works and that if doulas can't safely visit hospitals, they should continue promoting virtual care. If this was the 70s, we could never do this. Uh, today, we can do it. Virtual doula support works. It really does work. And um, women need to believe that because there's been telemed for doctors in, in, in mental health and wellness care for a long time. And doulas are doing the same thing, and it works very, very well. And Bold says hospitals in New York City aren't always doula-friendly to begin with. There are many nurses who are like, you know, feel that we are imposing. Um, there are doctors that feel that we are imposing. Uh, Why would you bring this stuff? This is doula support stuff, things that we use as comfort techniques. Things like birthing balls or massage oils. Bold says these kinds of experiences make it even more difficult to trust hospitals to welcome them into the delivery room in the age of COVID-19 and get them adequate PPE. When asked about whether they would provide PPE for doulas, three of the largest hospital systems in New York, including New York City Health and Hospitals, Mount Sinai, and New York Presbyterian, did not respond to requests for comment in time for air. NYU Langone declined Uptown Radio's request for comment. But one thing is clear, even full-time hospital employees are having trouble getting PPE. 
Dr. Samantha Penta teaches emergency preparedness at the University at Albany. COVID-19 has just created a demand that has far exceeded what we as a country, or really us as, as a global society, have anticipated. She says hospital supply chains weren't set up to address a crisis that emerged so quickly. And she says that sometimes important steps in the chain get left out of emergency preparations. One of the things that extreme events like COVID-19 or other kinds of disasters often end up doing for us is highlighting ways that we are interconnected that we didn't anticipate whether that has to do with where important supplies are coming from or people who actually have really crucial roles in organizational or societal functions that we didn't appreciate before. The next hospital birth that Denise Bolds has been hired to help with is in June, and she's hoping by then the curve may have flattened. But for now, both she and Mila Flores say they plan on working virtually with their clients. Emily Pizacreta, Columbia Radio News. Next week is the application deadline for a new challenge from the New York City Mayor's Office to find tech-based solutions to address the mental health needs of the Latinx population. According to an analysis from city officials, the fatality rate of the Latinx community from coronavirus is twice as high as white New Yorkers. So the pandemic has elevated the importance of this challenge. But as Cecily Moran reports, Mental health care, whether done through an app or in person, needs to be done right. When one of Raquel Ortiz Terron's patients told her she wanted to kill her husband, she knew her patient didn't really mean it. As a Latina, I know, oh, she's ticked off. What did he do now? I'm not running to the phone to call 911, you know. Terron is a therapist. She's clinical director of Casa Estar Bien a behavioral health clinic that works with Latinx patients. And of course, at the end of the conversation, I'll, I'll reflect. I'm like, you know, in the beginning of our session, you made a comment. You said, oh, I'm going to have to kill my husband. What, what, what's that about? Oh, you know, I love that man. He's such a good man. You know, and then the- Tyrone says it's critical that healthcare providers have a deep understanding of the culture they're working with. But you have to know that. You have to know that Latinos, when they're angry, they talk loud doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they want to go in your face, but that they're very passionate about their feelings. In order to understand how mental health technology might help the Latinx community, Tyrone says it's important to understand the unique obstacles the group faces, like not being a native English speaker. Imagine opening up a mental health app and realizing it's not in a language you can read. On top of that, there's the group's unique customs. Because I can speak Spanish. But if I'm not culturally sensitive, that person is not going to build a rapport with you. You have to address them. You know, an older woman, all my older women, and when I mean older, I mean like 60 and up. They're all called Doñas, Doña Maria, Doña, you know, Silvia, whatever. The men are called Don, you know, and there is a level of respect when you speak to them like that. That is exactly why the, I have patients that have been with me for, you know, 13, 14, 11, 9 years. Why? Because there's no other place that provides them with culturally sensitive services. Tyrone says her reaction to the city's new tech challenge is mixed. It would be wonderful if people who struggle with mental health are provided with a device that can help them stay connected with loved ones and healthcare providers. But she says many of her patients are older and would require training to navigate the tech. The city says its challenge is designed to address the needs of Latinx youth. But even for younger, tech-savvy users, there's another challenge, 
financial access. Carmen Vasquez is a clinical psychologist in New York who specializes in Latin American health. We must uh, keep in mind that the uh, reality of the economic situation is uh, very important and we must be very aware of these possible problems. According to a report from the city last year, the poverty rate of its Hispanic residents is around 20%, more than double the percentage of white residents. And according to the Manhattan Institute, around a quarter of Hispanic New Yorkers live in households that are overcrowded. Even if a child is able to have access to a device, a computer, a tablet, that child might not have the privacy. Oscar Romero works with the city's chief technology officer. He helped to design the challenge. He says he knows you can't just throw technology at a problem to solve it like giving out laptops to residents who might not have internet access. That's why the challenge is specifically designed for Latinx teens. He says technology can be helpful even if not everybody can afford it. It just has to be put in the right places. But if you're talking about the teens, then the connectivity that they have access to is considerably higher to a certain type of mobile devices and through certain types of venues, when they go to school, when they go to, to, to public libraries. The Latinx community has been hit hard by the pandemic. Romero says that makes the need for mental health solutions even more important. Trying to remove those barriers and, and giving these communities the space they deserve to, to have their voices heard. The finalists of the challenge will be announced this summer. Cecily Moran, Columbia Radio News. This weekend, Freeze New York launches their virtual art fair. It's usually one of the biggest art festivals in the city. But this year, like so many others, it's been canceled due to the pandemic. Reporter Lucas Brady-Woods looks at what it means to curate art virtually. Last May, almost 50,000 people attended exhibitions at Freeze New York. On Randall's Island, crowds surrounded a red groom's piece, a life-sized caricature of an MTA bus. But this year, Freeze New York sounds more like this. Welcome to the launch of Freeze Viewing Room and to our Freeze New York 2020 edition. That's a clip from a launch video for this year's Freeze Online Viewing Room. Starting today, the website will feature artist talks and virtual gallery tours. Linda Kennedy is the Vice President of Education and Evaluation for the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. She says with the shutdown, museums and galleries are exploring art and objects online in ways that you can't in real life. You can zoom right into an object and take a look at it up close, for example, or walk around it where there might have been a barrier, um, you know, in the in the space itself. God, I miss museums. Erin <laughs> Thompson is a professor at the City University of New York who studies art collecting and exhibition. She says nothing can replace the experience of being in the same space as the actual artworks, but she hopes the new virtual exhibitions can at least broaden access to major collections. I'm really hoping that, say, the Metropolitan Museum will do even more online programs, not so much for New Yorkers who can go back after they reopen, but for people in around the globe who might never um, have the chance to visit the museum. The challenge for arts organizations, though, is to figure out how. Nobody knows what to do these days, so if you have a good idea for what your museum should look like in the coming weeks during shutdown or the coming years during recovery, I'm sure they would like to know. Lucas Brady-Woods, Columbia Radio News.
York City's shelter system has mostly been made up of shared living spaces, like communal bedrooms, kitchens, and bathrooms. These have become hotbeds for spreading the coronavirus. The Department of Homeless Services reports over 700 people in its shelter system have tested positive. Almost 100 have died. As Wilwaukee reports, homeless New Yorkers have been struggling as the city moves them from shelters to vacant hotel rooms. David Gaynor has been homeless for 12 years. He's been living since September in the Opportunity House in Brooklyn, and he says he's worried that he might catch the coronavirus. He lives in a long, narrow room filled with 20 black, metal-framed beds lined up next to each other in rows. Somebody waking up from a nightmare to another nightmare. You're in a shelter with 60 men. How, how can you keep six, you know, six feet away and then you get 20 in a, in a room, in a dorm? Gaynor says that every day he sees residents of the shelter coughing and showing symptoms in communal spaces. Multiple people at the Opportunity House shelter have already tested positive for COVID-19. We had, we had uh, one, two, we had, we had three in this room, in this dorm. Yeah, and one of, the, one of the gentlemen that had the first one, they waited like about a week before they came and uh, disinfected with the sanitizer. And now, like, I guess it's 14 days up. He's back in here. The Department of Homeless Services, or DHS, did not immediately respond to requests for comment about the safety of its shelters. But the de Blasio administration is moving some shelter residents into vacant hotel rooms around the city. They say that should help make the shelters safer by allowing six feet between the beds and more room to isolate the infected. The city plans to move 1,000 residents a week this month from shelters into hotel rooms. Joe Lunum works for Vocal NY, a social services organization that works with the homeless. He says that even if the city does meet its goal, it's still not enough to keep the shelters safe. We're not sure how many people are infected in the shelter system right now, um, but we do know that you know there's tens of thousands who can't meaningfully isolate in this moment, and that puts you know the, the whole system at risk. The city will only move residents who are currently in shelters into hotel rooms. But advocates say many homeless people are afraid to enter the shelter system, so they don't have access to the hotel residence program. Last week, Vocal NY hosted an online public forum with elected officials and individuals experiencing homelessness. One of them was Rosetta Johnson, who's currently living in her car. She's scared of entering a DHS facility. I went to the shelter a couple of weeks ago, and the lady told me, enter at your own risk. I refuse to go into a shelter I refuse because I refuse to lose my life. I don't want to die because I'm homeless. That's not my goal. Johnson said she's reached out to the mayor's office and the governor for help. All they have been doing um, is like ignoring us. I'm homeless. I'm that homeless person. I'm the one that needs the hotel room. I'm the one who needs shelter. Jackie Simone is a policy analyst at the Coalition for the Homeless, an advocacy and service organization. She says homeless individuals are more likely to have underlying health conditions and need proper isolation. The problem, though, is that the city isn't moving fast enough. For her, the solution is so obvious that even children could understand. So yesterday morning, I started my day presenting virtually to a group of third graders. And I gave my overview of how we've adapted our services. And the first question a third grade kid asked me was, why isn't the mayor offering hotel rooms to everyone who needs them? And I did not have a good answer to that um, because it's, it's really inexplicable at this point. 
The New York City Council introduced legislation two weeks ago to provide a hotel room for all single adults on the streets or in congregate shelters. That's over 17,000 people in total. But the de Blasio administration opposes the bill, saying they don't have the resources to provide a room for that many people. Simone disagrees, saying the federal government could help out. FEMA very clearly stated that they would reimburse the city for the cost of the hotel rooms. And those, that correspondence occurred before the city council hearing where the city testified that finances were one of their primary concerns with the hotel rooms. Yesterday, three New York City council members called upon de Blasio to fire DHS Commissioner Stephen Banks. In a letter to the mayor, they said that he systematically failed to address the homeless situation during this pandemic. As the city struggles to move people out of its shelters, other advocates say the pandemic has revealed just how inadequate shelters already were in the first place. Anya Duggan works for Partnership for the Homeless. You know, I think the bigger lesson here is that shelters are not appropriate places for human beings to live. That's actually the biggest lesson of all. On Wednesday night, the city began the policy of shutting down the subway system from 1 to 5 a.m. The subways have long been another shelter of last resort for homeless people, one of them being Anthony Williams. He spoke at Vocal NY's online event from a train platform in Inwood. He also refuses to return to his shelter and is now getting kicked out of the one place he feels safe and warm every night. You know, again, I'm still out here and I'm screaming and crying out for help. So if anybody can hear me, you know, please help me. William says he'll keep staying in the subway system whenever it's open, until he can find a more permanent and safer place to live. Will Walkie, Columbia Radio News. For the next installment in our commentary series, reporter Sarah Gelbard wonders why we worry. A few years ago, I went to Cambodia to research how having a disability affects access to clean water. For two months, I interviewed disabled women in remote villages. We sat outside on straw mats next to houses on tall wooden poles with thatched roofs. One of the women lived with her sisters. They supported each other, gathered water from a nearby well. I met another woman who let me ride around on the back of her motorcycle speeding through open fields and another who was blinded by a landmine explosion. She was ostracized. Those who were blind told me the hardest things. They were afraid of being attacked. They didn't have enough food or water. I was based in Phnom Penh, and when I returned to the city lying in bed, my eyes started to sting. I felt nauseated. My phone rang, a call from the boy I was seeing back home. I told him I had just returned from interviewing blind women, and now my eyes stung. And then he told me he had met someone else. I stared at the ceiling, eyes stinging and stomach turning as he stumbled through an apology. The next morning, I went to work, but by midday, I couldn't stop throwing up. Co-workers found me on the floor next to the toilet. At the hospital, the doctor suggested bacteria or parasites and ordered IV rehydration. He told me I needed to see an eye doctor. You have colitis, right? I told him I did, but I'm fine. Every day I take medication and I don't think about it. He said, you could have uveitis. I vaguely remembered a warning. Some patients with colitis develop an eye condition that can cause loss of vision, but it was rare. Now I panicked. 
I asked the doctor if I should be worried. He just said yes and walked away. My boss told me not to worry. It's just pink eye. It wasn't my first brush with this kind of uncertainty. Thanks to an injury at birth, I didn't learn to walk until I was four, and then I learned again at 13 after a series of leg surgeries. I'll always have some difficulty walking. You might think after these experiences, I learned not to dwell on things I can't control. But I worry all the time. When I was waiting for my appointment with the eye doctor, I kept thinking about the blind women, an image stuck in my head of being bitten by scorpions and not being able to see them. I went to the eye doctor. He did some scans. It was just pink eye. I had spent weeks worrying a boy I cared for would dump me, and he did. I spent days worrying I might lose my vision, and I didn't. I knew worrying would never alter outcomes. I worried anyways. Isn't that what we're all doing now? Worrying about getting sick, people we love getting sick, running out of savings, loneliness, missing moments that matter to us? I'm in quarantine in New York. I've been cleaning to distract from that worry. I found leftover antibiotics from Cambodia, and then I remembered something from that time. When I was most panicked, I called my sister. She said, your eyes are probably okay. If they aren't, you'll figure it out. Hearing this helped, not because she thought I would be okay, but because of her respect for me. She thought I could handle anything. It made me feel powerful. I just heard from a friend in Cambodia. They want me to visit. Maybe when we're on the other side of this pandemic, I will. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Asim Shukla ran our show from Manhattan, New York. Leading our staff of reporters were senior producers Brett Forrest in Denver, Colorado, and Tay Glass in Ontario, Canada, with help from assistant producer Kira Long in Manhattan. Director Megan Cattell coordinated our production from Manhattan, and we wish her a very happy birthday. Senior editor Sarah Gelbard in Rochester, New York, and assistant editor Cecily Moran in Exeter, Rhode Island, led our copy team. Will Walkie managed our website today from Duxbury, Massachusetts, and Lucas Brady Woods in Brooklyn, Emily Pisacreta in Manhattan, and Lauren Peace in Charleston, West Virginia, brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Anya Schultz in Mountain View, California. And I'm Jamaris Perez in Miramar, Florida. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.